Next, this month's special series, Focus on Heart Health. Throughout the month of February, ReachMD talks with experts about new medications, technologies, and treatment guidelines in cardiac care. We are consistently working to improve our approach to diagnosing congenital heart defects. With both inherited and modifiable risk factors playing a role in these abnormalities, there are many aspects of treatment and prevention to consider. How can we best utilize tests to complement physical examination for diagnosis and treatment? What do we know, and in what areas do we need to learn more about preventing congenital heart disease? You're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment. Focus on heart health. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Shu, practicing general pediatrician and author. Our guest is pediatric cardiologist, Dr. William Maley, medical director of clinical research at Sibley Heart Center in Atlanta, and associate professor of pediatrics at Emory University School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Maley. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Great. Thank you for joining us. Now, congenital cardiovascular defects are relatively rare, and they affect less than 1% of infants, but they are the leading cause of death from congenital malformations. So broadly speaking, let's talk about who's at risk for congenital heart disease. Dr. Maley, who would you say is most at risk for these rare conditions? Well, one of the interesting things is worldwide, the incidence of congenital heart defects is really quite similar, be it in East Asia, the islands of the South Pacific, North America, or Europe. So there's some common phenomenon that goes into the development of any birth defects that seems to span across genetic and ethnic types around the world. So in theory, any mother who has a fetus, carrying a fetus, has some risk of congenital heart disease. However, there are some factors that influence the probability that the fetus or ultimately the baby is going to have a congenital heart defect. Some of these have to do with genetics, such as whether there are other family members and children who have congenital heart defects, in particular complex congenital heart defects, as well as factors about the mother before the pregnancy and how she's managed during pregnancy. And there are also some factors that seem to be important in terms of medication that the mom might use during pregnancy. Are there any paternal factors that are are possibly related, such as paternal age or exposures to environmental toxins? There have been some large epidemiologic studies, including one that looked at potential exposure of the fathers to Agent Orange back during the Vietnam War that suggested an association with children having birth defects. But medications that the father uses or paternal age are thought to be less important than factors about the mother in terms of the baby having heart defects. Not to say that this field won't evolve. I think we're coming to understand, for example, that paternal age now appears to be a risk factor for autism. So maybe as we get more and more data over time, we'll learn that factors about the father do have a greater influence. But now we think it's primarily related to factors about the mother and the mother's age. So regarding the mother, is it something that could be related to the mother's health or status preconception? Or is it really a problem with fetal development? Well, it's important to keep in mind that many women do not plan pregnancies or may perhaps not even know they're pregnant for several weeks. So it's very important for women to try and modify things about their health that would affect a pregnancy. For example, maternal obesity and the risk of diabetes in the mother can certainly alter the probability that the child will have a congenital heart defect or other forms of birth defects. So indeed, there's things about women's health that ultimately affects the likelihood of having a congenital heart defect. Is there a more important trimester during the pregnancy where women need to be most careful, or is it really the the entire time? Paradoxically, the most important by far is the first trimester. That's what we call organogenesis. The organs of the body of the fetus are being formed, and it is in that time frame around the 8th to 12th week, particularly of a mother's pregnancy, where the fetus can be at risk for congenital heart defects. 
Many women, by the time they've learned that they're pregnant, the heart of the fetus is already formed. So the second and third trimesters are more related to health of the placenta and the baby's growth. But if we're looking to intervene to reduce the incidence of congenital heart defects, we'd really have to plan before pregnancy and for the very early stages of pregnancy. So a lot of moms that I talk to say, well, I didn't know I was pregnant, and so I was still drinking or smoking or drinking coffee and other forms of caffeine. How would you advise those parents? Well, once they're pregnant, we'd obviously ask them to modify their lifestyle. But more importantly, I have to say that when we talk to women who are considering the possibility of pregnancy, it's really a lifestyle change that has to precede the planning of pregnancy. And if there's not rather strict forms of birth control, that I think those health recommendations have to really span for any woman of childbearing age to try and avoid certain medications, to avoid alcohol, to avoid smoking, and to stay active and exercise so that their weight and body mass index are what we expect for a healthy woman. Now, a lot of women of childbearing age do take prenatal vitamins or multivitamins containing folic acid. Is there any evidence that doing this can decrease the risk of congenital heart disease? Correct. So folic acid has been one of the real breakthroughs in terms of birth defects in general, and that's the understanding that folic acid first was found to reduce the risk of neural tube defects. That would be things like meningomyelocele, which is a abnormality in how the spinal cord is enveloped in the, both the bones and the skin of the lower back. This discovery led to both the routine supplementation of standard available foods, such as bread with folate, and the recommendation that women planning pregnancy receive an adequate amount of folate. This has resulted in a reduction for sure in the United States and in much of the developed and now the developing world in the risk of neural tube defects. Well, it was found in subsequent analyses that along with the reduction in neural tube defects, there was also a reduction in some studies in congenital heart defects. Not surprisingly, the brain is probably the genetically most complex organ, and after that, second most complex organ is the heart. So we were not surprised to see these studies suggest that with additional folate, that there was suggestion of reduction in congenital heart defects. So that's been a very positive turn. There's never been a randomized trial just to look at folate for reduction of congenital heart defects. There was an attempt to carry out such a trial recently in China, but I think it was difficult to obtain the right enrollment. So right now, we'd certainly recommend, as the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists would, folate medications, so multivitamins with folate, to reduce the risk of congenital heart defects in a fetus and baby. If you've just joined us, you're listening to a special segment, Focus on Heart Health, from ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Shu. Our guest is Dr. William Maley, Medical Director of Clinical Research at Sibley Heart Center in Atlanta. Now, of the babies who are born with congenital heart defect, what portion would you say were diagnosed prenatally? That obviously varies both by country and within the country, and it varies based on the significance of the congenital heart defect. In some of the more complex congenital heart defects, such as hypoplastic left heart syndrome, there's many centers now that are reporting that three-quarters of the fetuses in the United States are detected prenatally. Other defects that are either subtle, such as a small hole in the heart called a ventricular septal defect or an atrial septal defect, are likely to be diagnosed prenatally only in about 20% or less. And then there's intermediate heart lesions that just are more of a challenge for the sonographer, the person who takes the ultrasound picture to identify. This might be something like transposition of the great arteries, which might only be detected in, say, 40 to 50 percent of the cases, depending. And there's also some variation around the country. I think in Europe, the approach and the standardization toward ultrasound before birth is much more 
programmatic and systematic, they actually have higher detection rates than much of the United States. So in addition to the prenatal ultrasound diagnosis, are there screening programs such as with fetal echocardiography for patients who are at higher risk, maybe the moms with gestational diabetes or maternal diabetes? Well, there is not an official recommendation that every single mother or pregnant women in the United States receive an ultrasound to look for birth defects. There was a study some 15, 20 years ago called the RADIUS study that tried to see if ultrasound during pregnancy could detect enough birth defects that would improve outcome. And it ended up coming up a little bit short in terms of its results. That being said, the great majority of women in America receive an ultrasound scanning for congenital defects of any sort, spinal cord defects, kidney defects, heart defects. But the overall quality of these scans can vary and the degree to which the sonographer might look for defects in the heart is going to vary. So hopefully with time, we'll, we will be a little more explicit in terms of what we exactly expect from this study. But I would say right now, the majority of women get some sort of ultrasound, roughly between 18 and 22 weeks of pregnancy, to look for heart abnormalities, but the quality and extent of the heart examination varies. Now, for the infants who are diagnosed after birth, how are their congenital heart defects picked up? And is it in the newborn nursery typically, or is it not until they get to the pediatrician's office after discharge? So it can vary. Right now, it's estimated that probably about 25% of the children have real significant heart defects, those that might require surgery, probably leave the newborn nursery without anyone knowing about it. And that remains certainly a problem. Moreover, there are children who are born in the hospital, and we don't know they have a congenital heart defect of significance. And they may manifest by having a heart murmur, which means the heart produces a sound as it pumps blood. They may look different. They may look bluer than usual because their oxygen levels are lower. They may breathe faster. They may not feed well. So these can all be detected. Unfortunately, some of the things such as not feeding well probably occurs after the heart has already shown that it can't pump blood normally and the other organs may be suffering. So even though they might be identified in the newborn nursery, we may already be getting a process where the brain or the kidneys or the liver are not receiving enough blood flow. So even that's probably a bit too late in many of these cases. And I think the more we can detect things earlier during pregnancy, the better. Then obviously the children who go home from the nursery are particularly problematic. Some of them have lesions in which the blood vessels of the heart are, remain open and that this one connection within the heart called the ductus arteriosus can close, and as this closes, the children can have shock and sometimes die at home. And we estimate, based on a study here in Atlanta and one done in California, that about probably one out of every 100,000 babies that's born dies at home from a heart defect that was missed. And there may be many others who survive but probably have some residual brain injury because of late detection. So it is an area of intense investigation and controversy as to how best to improve detection. So in addition to physical exam, are there any screening tests we should be performing routinely both in the newborn nursery and the pediatrician's office to avoid missing some of these diagnoses? One proposal is that every newborn baby should have an ultrasound of the heart, which is likely to pick up these cases that I talked about that are missed. Unfortunately, that has a rather significant downside. That's going to add additional costs of quite significance to the care of any healthy baby. Right now, we wouldn't even have enough sonographers, ultrasound specialists to do all the studies. And lastly, we might find a lot of minor abnormalities that one might recommend follow-up for, but will not ultimately affect the child's long-term survival. The real downside of that is, as you can imagine, having a newborn baby is challenging enough, but the anxiety that your child might have a heart condition that they've identified 
will really be a challenge for a lot of parents. So people have not generally embraced the idea of every newborn child getting an ultrasound of the heart, which is also known as an echocardiogram. Another technique that has garnered a lot of interest and attention recently is the concept of checking the child's oxygen level. Most newborn babies, when after about 24 hours of life, will have their blood nearly fully saturated with oxygen. We talk about 95% saturated or above. Children who have significant heart defects, over half of the ones with significant heart defects, are going to have oxygen levels that are less than 95%. A technology has been around for 25, 30 years called pulse oximetry, which can measure oxygen saturations, and it's relatively inexpensive and fast to use. And this is one of the major controversies. There are many delivery hospitals in the United States right now that perform this oximetry measurement on all their newborns. There are some European countries that for every child born in the country, they perform oximetry. A couple of concerns have been raised about this methodology. One is that there'll be some otherwise healthy children who turn out to have oxygen levels less than 95%, at least for a brief period of time. Similar to what I described about the ultrasound, this is going to raise some unnecessary anxiety for the parents. And one of the biggest concerns is say that a child's born in a small rural hospital where they obtain this oximetry measurement. The general thought was if you have your low oximetry measurement that you would need to evaluate this more fully with a comprehensive ultrasound. Well, if you live in a small rural community, it may mean the child needs to be driven or flown far away to a high-level hospital, perhaps only to find that the heart's completely normal. So there's been some reservation on the part of primary care providers and other specialists in the field. This methodology is not, at this point, universally incorporated in the United States. The discussion is ongoing, and it is possible that with more time and some other techniques to potentially reduce any unnecessary transports of children, that we will see it in not only some, but perhaps the majority, if not all, delivery hospitals here in the United States. Would you think there would be a higher yield if you pair the pulse oximetry findings with maybe forelimb blood pressure readings or heart rate measurements, chest x-ray, anything like that, or if you repeat it over a period of time? In terms of the oximetry, one strategy is to perform one measurement relatively early and repeat it periodically. A recent study from Sweden said that they had some luck with that approach. So there's some refinements with that. Measuring blood pressures are a tremendous challenge in newborn babies. It's a technique that requires a lot of skill and a lot of patience as babies are crying. I think it's only a lot likely to add a lot of time, a fair bit of frustration and not pick up many children. And to date, the routine use of chest x-rays has not been found to be very helpful. There is some question about whether we should be performing electrocardiograms or ECGs in all young children. One of the problems is that ECGs in the first 24 to 48 hours of life change quite a bit and are very difficult to measure. So an ECG done at a month of age can be very helpful. One done at 24 hours of age is a bit of a challenge. So I think if the field is likely to move forward, it's likely to move forward either with pulse oximetry, better understanding of how to use it, or perhaps there may be some role for some serum markers. There are some newer markers that are drawn to see if the heart muscle is having problems and potentially there may be a role where we, when we check blood levels for newborns, if we can get the results back quick enough, there'll be a role for serum blood measures looking for signs of heart weakness or problems with the heart. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. William Maley. We've been discussing ways to recognize and potentially prevent congenital heart defects. I'm Dr. Jennifer Shu. You've been listening to a special segment, Focus on Heart Health, from ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, and thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Heart Health. For a program guide, complete list of shows, and podcasts, please visit us at ReachMD.com.